Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. The series is called The American Idols. In every generation, we have a form of idol worship. And sometimes it's... um, more obvious, sometimes a little more subtle. So we have to take a look at what kind of idolatry, what kind of worship of false gods do we have here in America in our time? And there are quite a few. Because in a broad definition of idolatry, the idea is that you put your trust in something that isn't trustworthy. You put your faith in something that does not deserve your faith. That's called a false god. Not that there can be another god. So a false god simply means treating something as if it were God. What does that mean? We put our trust in God, we put our faith in God, We worship God. Putting your trust or faith in anything other, worshiping anything other than God, is idolatry. There's another interesting definition. Worshiping a false god, idolatry, can also mean that the worship or the faith is false. In other words, can you really worship something that isn't God? Is it, is it really faith when you put your faith in something other than God? Or is it just reckless, careless, thoughtless? So when we say false gods or false uh, worship, We mean both things. What you're worshiping is not a true God, and what you think feels like worship or faith or trust really isn't. Because if it's not a real God, then you can't have a real faith, which we'll we'll talk about a little later, hopefully. But here's an interesting thing. How did idolatry begin? Because as far as we know, at the beginning of history, when everything was clean and innocent, when the truth was obvious and clear, God communicated with people. God spoke to Adam and to Chava. God spoke to Noach. God spoke to Avraham. Where did idolatry come from? How did, how did it justify itself, how did it get off the ground? Which means to say, the relationship with God early in the beginning of history was not a matter of faith. People didn't believe in God. They waited to have their conversation with God. They didn't trust in God. They knew him personally. 
you know, that whole routine about Noah. God said, make an ark. And he said, who are you really? And God said, make it 30 cubits. And he said, what's a cubit? I mean, they had a conversation. So Noah didn't have any doubts about God. He just wasn't sure about a cubit. So where did belief come from? When did we start believing in things? Rambam, at the beginning of the laws of idolatry, offers a very uh, lengthy, interesting introduction. Or what seems like an introduction rather than a law. The reason for the introduction is, in order to not be guilty of idol worship, it's not enough to simply not believe. Like, I'm sure there are many idols that I don't believe in, because I never heard of them. Is my rejection of those idols fulfilling the commandment, thou shalt have no other gods? No, it's not. Because I'm, I'm just not interested so if I'm too lazy to believe in an idol, that doesn't cover my obligation to reject idolatry. Rejecting idolatry means having a clear and convincing argument showing that the idol cannot be real. If I'm not convinced of that, if I haven't studied it and understood it, then I'm just too lazy to worship an idol which most people today are, especially if you have to make your own graven image. That's too much work for most people. So we don't bother with it, but that's not how you fulfill the commandment. So Rambam tells us how it all started, where the mistake was, so that we know what's wrong, what's false about an idol. So it's not just laziness or, you know, one God is enough, I don't need two. That's, that's not the way to fulfill the commandment. So Rambam says as follows. Way back in the days of Enosh, at the beginning of the first generations of history, the people made a serious mistake. A mistake. An honest mistake. Because they argued that since God created the stars, the planets, and gave them a lot of influence and power over the earth and life on earth, they assumed, they argued, that God would want us to worship those stars and those planets just as a king would expect you to honor his ministers. In other words, God's honor, God's power, God's authority extends to some degree to his representatives, to his ministers, to his generals, so that by honoring the general and the minister, you're actually honoring God. So by worshiping the stars, you're really worshiping God 
through the stars. Because the more honor you give the king's representative, the more honor you're giving the king. And that was an honest or sincere mistake. The assumption was wrong. Why was it wrong? Because there's a huge difference between a minister or a general who represents a king to the stars and the, and the planets in the heavens. The minister, the general, is a human being with freedom of choice. If he chooses to be a minister for the king, if he chooses to be a general in the king's army, he does deserve some credit. After all, he volunteered. Or, even if he was drafted, he decided to do a good job as long as you're in the army anyway, so he did a good job. And that's why he got to be the general. So there's a certain element of freedom of choice for which the minister or the general deserves a little recognition and a little gratitude. But the stars, with all their influence on earth, um, regardless of how indispensable the sun or the moon is to life on earth, they deserve no credit at all because it's not their own strength, it's not their own will, they do not choose to do this, they can't decide whether they're going to do a good job or a bad job, and therefore honoring or worshiping the stars is like worshiping the axe or the, or the hammer with which a carpenter does his work. It's, it's senseless. So the assumption was a mistake because it, it implied that the stars, the planets, have some opinion of their own, some will of their own, and therefore deserve some credit of their own, which is not true. But here's how things deteriorated. From this assumption that God himself wants us to honor and worship the planets, they then want, went on to um, develop forms of worship, like offering sacrifices, bowing, throwing stones, making piles of stones, and that became idol worship. So the early idolaters did not in any way claim or believe that the stars or the planets or the, uh, the astrological signs were God. They never claimed that. They never said that the stars or the, or the planets created the world. They just assumed that uh, the vice president should get a little respect as well. Because we don't believe that today. <laughs> Then things got worse. After many days of this kind of uh, uh, false assumption, false prophets 
arose. False prophets meaning not sincere, misguided souls, but false prophets, liars. They got up and they said that God actually commanded that we worship these stars, planets, idols, or whatever. So now it was no longer we think God would appreciate it. Now it became, no, God said. God said worship these idols. It's, it's a mitzvah. <laughs> it's a commandment from God to worship his ministers or generals. Things got worse. This is a very long introduction. Things got worse until eventually, a few generations later, the false prophets were now saying that the idol spoke to them and demanded worship. So these were the three steps that led to the vulgar, gross form of idolatry. The first mistake was God probably wants us to do this. And then the lie, God said to do this. And then the additional lie, the idol said, do it or else. The conclusion we can draw just from that alone is that when you start with a false assumption, you're going to have to back it up with a lie. And once you start lying, you have to keep building the lie. But we see from this how belief was introduced. Why do they believe in idols? Well, because unlike God, the idols don't talk to anybody. And so the only way you can believe in an idol, the only way you can trust an idol, the only way you can worship an idol is if you believe the lie. Somebody came along and said, God told me to tell you. Well, that's a lot of belief. Now, the way things work, once you start this big lie, it becomes the norm. So imagine Avraham came to the people and said, there's only one God who created heaven and earth. And they said, oh, is that what you believe? And he said, that's not what I believe. That's, that's who we've always talked to and that's what's known. They said, fine, you have your beliefs, we have ours. And he could not convince them that his relationship with God was not a belief. Because that became the language, that became the vocabulary. So what do you believe? Even today we have a hard time convincing people. We don't believe in God. He is the God of our grandparents. They spoke to him, they argued with him, they uh, obeyed him, they disobeyed him. We have a full rainbow of experiences with God. It's not that we believe in him, but 
No matter how often you say that, people say, oh, so that's what you believe. Okay. Can't seem to get away from that. All right, so now we know. When you make an assumption, and then you put your trust in that assumption, and then you build the urgency, the, the necessity, the importance, the indispensability of that which you invented, that's called an idol. So in some places in the Torah, the idol is described as the product of your own hands. You make the idol and then you worship it? How senseless is that? Well, it doesn't necessarily mean something you make with your hands. But all idols are human product. It was your assumption, it's your claim, it's your opinion. Now, to turn around and worship your own opinion, that's funny. That's a little strange. So let's take a look at some of the idols we have in, uh, in our times. It's particularly relevant, this whole subject, to today, more so than three years ago or five years ago, because we are suffering from disillusionment because all of our idols have disappointed. Which again is a definition of an idol. It will disappoint because it can't help you. It doesn't have a will of its own. The first thing we should talk about is the worship of money. There's a reason that the government engraves on its coins and prints on its uh, bills, in God we trust. Why, on, why on, on the dollar bill? Why on the coin, monetary coin? We don't see it anyplace else. Where else does that line or that, that phrase appear? It's not on buildings, it's not... Uh, not on ships, on, on, not on the flag, it's on the money. And that's because it was, it was understood that we are going to establish a country here that will not make the same mistake that was made in the past. And that is, we don't put our trust in our possessions. We don't put our trust in our wealth. Possibly because many of the people who came here were escaping from other countries where they had a lot of money and it didn't do them any good. They had to leave it all behind. And so one of the things they were determined, one of the mistakes they were determined not to make again was never again to put their trust in wealth. Well, but we came to America, and America turned out to be a really nice country. There is no czar who can confiscate your wealth. There is no emperor who can behead you and take all your money away. There is no king who has any 
authority, any rights to your money. Now we can trust our money, can't we? They tell a story about a guy who was fabulously wealthy back, back when. He had wealth all over the world. He had factories, storage houses, ships, carrying goods. He, he had money everywhere. And he was walking down the street, and he was thinking to himself, I know God controls the world, runs the world, and God can do anything. But there's no way that I could become impoverished in a short time. For me to lose my wealth would take a lot of doing, a long time. I've got factories everywhere. I've got ships all over the ocean. As he's thinking this, a couple of muggers attack him and they say, sign over all your wealth to us immediately or we'll kill you. So he signs it over and they walk away <laughs> and he has nothing because he signed it all away in a second. It was all gone. So he was humbled and sobered and he continued on and he thought to himself, that was impressive. Now I'll never be able to be rich again for a long time. I'll, I'll, I'll never be able to be as rich in a short time. It would take all the rest of my life to rebuild all that wealth. And as he's walking along, some policemen come over to him and dragging the muggers with them, saying, uh, these are wanted criminals. Did you sign something? It's, it's, it's void. You don't have to... Uh, fulfill your, your agreement. And all of a sudden, he was as wealthy as he was 10 minutes earlier. So wealth comes and goes. There's nothing you can do about that. Uh, so putting your trust in money is going to lead to disappointment. I think we've talked about this, that According to the Torah, a person should always have real estate. <coughs> Paper money, not good. When you have real estate, then you can play with paper money for approximately 50 years. You can wheel and deal and buy and sell and do all sorts of um, money games on paper, but after 50 years, you got to go back to something real. You have to go back to your real estate. Now it turns out that even real estate can get you into a lot of trouble. It's not as real as it sounds. Real estate is not that real. So we don't put our trust in, uh, in our possessions, including real estate, because it comes and goes and uh, does not have a will of its own. Although there's a Yiddish expression that says, money is blind, 
And that's why she keeps ending up in, she keeps ending up in the wrong pocket. <laughs> right? that, the, the money doesn't even, doesn't even watch where it's going, and it ends up in the wrong people's pockets. But money is not blind. It has no eyes. It has no will. It has no... It has no uh, intelligence. So to trust money is a false god. Now, one of the reasons that a false god is so uh, objectionable, as, as in the expression, you're worshiping the work of your own hands, it's not just that you made it and now you worship it, but that if you made it, then it is inferior to you. How can you worship something that has less power, that is less real than you? So when this Chacham said that religion is a crutch, the opiate of the masses, he was, he was, being, he was being foolish. People don't put their trust in things that are weaker than them. A person can't walk because his leg is hurt. He puts his trust in a crutch. Why? Because the crutch is stronger than his leg. His leg can't hold him up. The crutch does. But you've never seen anybody put their trust in a crutch that is made out of uh, silly putty. Because it doesn't work. So a crutch has to be something stronger than your infirmity or your weakness. But if you put your trust in something weaker than... That's, that's just plain silly. It's senseless. The money you make seems to give you power. But when we think about it, it's really not true. We give money power. Money doesn't give us power. As we've learned the hard way, it all depends on people's moods and people's decisions and people's values that determines how good a dollar is going to be, how useful your money is going to be, how real your real estate is going to be. So, <clears throat> worshipping money is an idol for the following reasons. Number one, it is weaker than you, and yet you're putting your trust in it. Number two, you make the money, it's your own product, and then you worship what you made. And number three, there's the false assumption that money makes the person. Not just power, but in, in terms of um, dignity, respect, worth. There are even people who suggest that if you're rich, it shows that God likes you. And if you're not rich, it means God doesn't like you so much. That's a false assumption. So what then is the truth? 
for every false idea, there's got to be the equal opposite correct idea. What is the right attitude towards money? By putting the words in God we trust on the dollar bill, we're not only denying a false God. Say, I'm not going to trust the money because it's disappointed us in the past and it will probably disappoint us again. But it's not saying, I don't trust this money. It's saying, I do trust in God. What does trust in God mean? Does it mean I trust that God will give me money? Does it mean I trust that God will make me rich? Not necessarily. To put your trust in something means you anchor your existence to that, to that item or to that, to that thought. What makes your existence valid? What makes you real? When all else fails, what do you say to your children? If the money in the bank loses its value, you say to your children, well, we still have a house. When your house is being repossessed, <laughs> what do you say then? Well, at least we have... At least we have each other. But then what do you do when your child says, who is we, white man? I'm leaving. <laughs> I don't like this kind of life. I'm going to go get rich. What is the bottom line? Where, where does validity, truth, stability, where, where does it... Where does it live? Where is it real? So that it cannot be ruined, it can't be taken away, it can't be lost. So what you trust in means that which you consider the ultimate reality, truth, permanent, secure, meaningful. In God we trust doesn't mean I think God is going to make me rich or I think God is going to make my team win. Trust in God means I know that life is real and I know that life is valuable because God thinks so. That's called trust in God. And even people who claim not to believe in God trust in God. So that you hear people who are skeptics or atheists. Or, and when things are really bad, you'll hear them say things like, well, it's got to get better now. Really? Where did you get that from? Oh, things can't get any worse. Really? What religion is that? Which holy book are you quoting? Or even when people think, may, may not say it, they would think, um, I mean, it can't be like life is over, the world is finished. That can't be. Why not? 
So there was a time when we were literally uh, agonizing over the end of the world. During the Cold War, somebody is going to push a button by accident or, or intentionally, and it's all going to be over. And then the day after, the three survivors are going to make a movie <laughs> and make a lot of money and it'll start all over again. But we were literally terrified of the end of the world. But we survived it. We survived the very real possibility of the world ending. How did we survive it? Including skeptics and, and agnostics and atheists. It's because something, something in our heart and mind said, nah, 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 it can't be. It can't be that life is just going to end. And they really believed that. But they would be very hard-pressed to explain on what grounds do they say this and where do they get such confidence from? How can you be so sure? How can you trust what you just said? The answer is, what they mean is that whoever created this world isn't going to let it blow itself up so quickly or so easily. So basically, belief in God means life is true. We are real. The issues, right and wrong, good and bad, are real because, because God thinks so. That's called trust in God. If you extend that, if, in fact, it's true that God takes life seriously and that he created the world with a purpose and that he's not going to let us blow it up just because we're in a bad mood, if that's true, then why would he want people to be sick? He probably doesn't. So let's try to heal them. Why would he want people to be hungry? He probably doesn't. Let's feed them. And if we can't, then God will somehow get food to them or get cure to them. Because if he created the world and he wants the world and he likes it when the world is good, then he is going to do whatever it takes to see to it that uh, we arrive at uh, the perfect conclusion of this vast eternal plan. The more we think about it, the more ridiculous idolatry sounds. If that's what trust means, if that's what worship means, then really, does anyone believe in money? Not at all. Nobody in their right mind. And yet, we get a little careless with our thinking and with our language, and we could end up saying, I trust my wealth. Nothing can happen to me, I'm rich. Whatever happens, I'll buy my way out. I'll pay and I'll get whatever I want. Oh, very few people really think that. But it's, but it's a common 
It's a common uh, language that should be avoided because you're not allowed to worship idols even in speech. So money, for a while we thought maybe, maybe, when all else fails, at least you have your money. But now we know that that's, that's part of the problem. Part of the problem in life is that uh, you, you start to depend on money. That is not the solution, it's part of the problem. And that's why worshiping it is idolatrous. Now you look at the commercials and they're very, they're very wicked, very corrupt. Somebody builds himself a nice house with a swimming pool and he's sitting there with a drink in his hand, a cold drink. And the message is, this is life. Now we're living. Or it don't get any better than this. This is the ultimate. That is so misleading. Children growing up with this message have been misled, misinformed, and therefore handicapped. Because by the time they realize that it does get a lot better than this, and this is not the ultimate, having a pool doesn't mean you've made it. It means you now have to take care of the pool and you can't even afford the chemicals. <laughs> so now all of a sudden your whole life has been shattered. You're totally disillusioned because you had it all and now it's gone. That can make you suicidal. The commercials are really bad. And as long as we're talking about commercials, it leads us to our second idol. to be continued.